to invite all those who are able uh, to stand uh, where you are and to turn to one another, see each other, and pass to one another the sign of peace. Yeah. You may be seated. I want to say two things. Um, first, uh, we want to recognize all those uh, in our lives who have provided uh, a good model of what fatherhood looks like uh, on this day in which we recognize fathers. We want to we want to extend that recognition to all those people who in our lives have offered us the kind of example by which we can live with integrity in pursuing in pursuing justice and in pursuing um, a world for everyone so Happy Father's Day. I also want to say, dang, it's good to see Joe Brown. <laughs> Joe has been recovering from uh, an injury for some time now, and I'm just tickled to see you and Carolyn here. And now, a reading from the Gospel according to St. Mark. On that day, when evening had come, Jesus said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, he took them with, uh, took, uh, they took him with them in a boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat, so that the boat was already being swamped. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him up, and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? He woke up, and he rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And then the wind ceased, and there was a dead calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great awe and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The gospel of the Lord. On September 22, 1862, 
President Abraham Lincoln issued an executive order called Proclamation 95, better known as the Emancipation Proclamation. Now, this order said that as of January 1st, 1863, all enslaved people in the Confederate States would thenceforth be free from bondage. Of course, because of the ongoing Civil War itself, the federal government couldn't immediately enforce this new executive order. So it, it might have appeared to be merely a symbolic gesture. But the Emancipation Proclamation had at least two important, immediately practical things. One, it gave an enslaved people hope that their dreams of liberation were a possibility. And two, it also said that any enslaved person who escaped the Confederacy to the Union States was now free and could no longer be returned to the people who claimed to own them. Because before that time, the, the, the fugitive slave law, they were subject to being returned as contraband. Now, bafflingly, at least to me, if not to many other historians, up to that point, the Union Army often held captives, um, these escaped people, um, so that they could be claimed by the people who held them in bondage. But as of midnight on January 1st, 1863, all enslaved peoples held as contraband by the Union Army were to be released. But see, the Emancipation Proclamation was only a provisional step because of, obviously the rest of the war still had to be fought. Though Robert E. Lee surrendered at the Appomattox Courthouse on April 9th, 1865, thus officially ending the Civil War and the unspeakable practice of slavery, the Western Army of the Confederacy held out until June 2nd. But see, since the internet was still in its infancy, I mean, okay. So communication over long distances at that time could only be done by telegraph or by somebody on horseback. But if there were no telegraph lines, news had to travel the old fashioned way. You had to ride a horse, you had to walk. So often the news took a great deal of time to get from one place to another, especially if there was a large distance in between. So it was that the news about the end of the Civil War and the outlawing of the institution of chattel slavery didn't reach everyone overnight. In fact, the news officially didn't reach Galveston, Texas until June 19th, 1865, two months after the end of the Civil War and the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. And on that date, June 19th, 1865, Major General Gordon Granger finally issued general orders concerning the end of the war. But it is general order number three that has become so central to our history. 
It said, the people of Texas are informed that in accordance with the proclamation from the executive of the United States that all slaves are free. This involves an absolute equality of personal rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves, and the connection heretofore existing between them becomes that between employer and hired labor. Well, the celebration that unfolded on June 19, 1865, came uh, to be an annual observance for black people. It, uh, it was known as Jubilee Day, or Black Independence Day, or Emancipation Day. But by the 1890s, the most popular name for this historic milestone was Juneteenth, which we observed yesterday. And, over, and three days ago, over 150 years later, President Biden signed Juneteenth into law as a federal holiday, a federal observance. Now, Juneteenth stands as an important celebration of the liberation of black people for our understanding of history, for the responsibilities that we all owe. But amidst the celebration, it's important to remember that Juneteenth represented and still represents something profoundly dangerous and imminently terrifying to many white people. See, white people both in the Union and in the Confederacy were afraid that freeing enslaved people, which is to say black people, would cause no small amount of chaos, right? Racism wasn't just a fact in the South, it turns out. Most Northerners, though they fought to free the enslaved, were just as bigoted toward black people as their Southern siblings. Northerners were, by and large, glad that slavery had been abolished, but they were just as anxious as Southerners to keep black people in their place. Otherwise, they were just afraid that chaos would be unleashed. Our gospel this morning, which is probably familiar to, to many of you, has a larger purpose than is usually recognized. If we take a look at what's been happening leading up to our story for this morning, the story of Jesus and the disciples going out and meeting a great storm and, and Jesus calming it, if we take a look at what, what's going on before the story happens, we see that Jesus has just been regaling the crowd with parables about the kingdom of God and seeds and farming and such. Each of these parables communicates some sense that the kingdom of God breaks out in surprising ways. The parable of the mustard seed, for example, that we talked about last Sunday, this, the tiniest seed is uh, when, it, when it takes root, explodes and becomes this huge thing, and it's disruptive, actually, to farmers, and, uh, and Jesus likens the kingdom of God to that. Sometimes the littlest seeds wind up amazing us because of their tremendous growth and tenacity, the ability to disrupt. In other words, the world that Jesus announces 
is unruly and unpredictable. It's chaotic. Things everyone takes for granted should be growing in the field are often displaced by the, this unmanageable new plant. So it's fitting then that our story about a storm this morning begins with the words, on that day, which is to say, on the very day Jesus has been talking about the surprising nature of the world that's breaking in on us, these seeds, these, this wild, unmanageable kingdom of God, on that same day, the world starts breaking in, literally. As James Boyce has pointed out, in the order of the original Greek, the, the, the text would read, and he continued to speak to them on that day. In other words, Mark very carefully connects the parables of the weeds and the mustard seed to the story of Jesus and the disciples crossing the sea and being hit by the storm. But see, before we get to the storm itself, we need to notice something about the geography at work in our text this morning. Don't you roll your eyes at me. So starting back in chapter 3, Jesus and his disciples have been keeping time in his old stomping grounds up in, in, in Galilee. And at first, Jesus was in his hometown in Nazareth. If you remember when his, his family sort of sought him out and tried to have him committed because they were certain that the things he was teaching and the controversy he was stirring up meant that he didn't have his head screwed on right. But then Mark tells us that Jesus took his disciples and he started teaching down by the sea. The sea in question, of course, is the Sea of Galilee, which is on the eastern border of Galilee. And our text for this morning gives us this sort of telling geographical touchstone. Jesus says, let us go across to the other side. Now that might seem like a pretty innocuous thing to say, right? Just, hey everybody, why don't we hop in a boat and head to the other side of the lake? Not a big deal, doesn't sound like, does it? But see, there's more to it than that. Because the real question is, What's on the other side? The answer to that is Gerasa. Now that name might not mean much to you, but location-wise, it was in that region known as the Decapolis, a Greek region, which is to say it was in Gentile country. And in fact, every time in Mark's gospel when Jesus is on the Galilean side of the Sea of Galilee, on this side, and he says, let's go over to the other side, it's Mark's way of sort of foreshadowing, of, of, of telling us as the creepy music swells that the lights have all gone out and the babysitter is going down into the cellar to see what the problem is. That is to say, when Mark's first audience heard about Jesus and his disciples going to the other side, their immediate reaction would be, uh-oh, <laughs> things are fixing to get interesting. Now, going to Gentile land was a thing that most Jews didn't do voluntarily. There's too much bad mojo heading into the land of the unclean. And the fears of Mark's readers are soon realized 
since the first person that they meet upon stepping out of the boat after our story today is a demon-possessed menace who runs out of the tomb straight toward Jesus and his disciples, shrieking at the top of his lungs. And all of this before their feet are even dry from tying the boat up. I mean, you can see what I mean. Because according to Mark, going to the other side is always a dangerous proposition. You don't know who you're going to meet there. And you start mixing with, you know, those people. Pretty soon, who knows? Chaos. And we know that Mark is keenly aware of how this journey to the other side is inextricably linked to the parables Jesus has just told on the safe side of the sea. The parable of the weeds and the mustard seed, which Jesus likens to the kingdom of God, reveal that the kingdom of God is going to look unruly and frenzied to people who prefer things the way they are. And having just taught that lesson in parable form, Jesus gets in the boat and he acts it out in real life where the kingdom of God shows up, blowing in from out of nowhere. Everybody who doesn't know what's going on is going to be terrified. I mean, it appears as a threat to a safe world that we're accustomed to, a crack in the world that lets in chaos. Jesus out in the open in this boat. Speaking of chaos, Mark wants us to feel the helplessness of it that Jesus just used to describe the kingdom of God. Which helplessness is precisely what the disciples feel when as they're crossing to the other side in the boat, this storm blows in. Now, seated in our nicely air-conditioned sanctuary, we might be tempted to say, okay, so they ran into a little storm. I mean, they're experienced sailors, right? I mean, what's the big deal? That's a good question. And if it were only a matter of their nautical abilities and their meteorological prowess, we might be right in wondering what the big deal is. But you see, to people in the ancient Near East, the sea wasn't just a sort of giant tub of water to be navigated. It was the playground of gods and demons. You never knew what could happen out there on the water. Some deity wakes up on the wrong side of the bed or has an especially painful corn. The waves might bring a wall of water down on top of you to take you to the bottom of the sea. So the sea was viewed as this sort of staging ground for nasty surprises, a a laboratory for chaos and disruption. Now this is the same kind of chaos that we find in Genesis when God was creating the heavens and the earth. Now you remember that, right? The earth was a formless void, a cosmic chaotic mess, and darkness covered the face of the deep. It's important to point out that the text doesn't say there was nothing and God created everything out of that nothingness. It says there was chaos and God created everything from out of that. Remember that? God surveying the vast chaotic booyah bays all the way back in the beginning. Remember what happens next? God spoke. 
And in the original creation story, God imposed order on the chaos. God rebuked the chaos with a few words. Let there be light. And there was light. See, this is a God who confronts chaos with the power of of words and establishes order where before only disorder existed. Now, Mark subtly draws his readers into this story about Jesus calming the storm by giving off echoes of the creation story. There are the disciples out there on the sea, and this great big storm descends on them. Now, the Greek here is word for big is mega. <laughs> this, this is, in other words, Jesus and disciples run into a mega storm. So obviously, the disciples are afraid. But not only of the physics of what happens to small boats on the sea in a mega storm, but that they are out exposed on the home field of the gods and the demons, terrified that chaos will break loose and it will swallow them up. And so they scramble down to a napping Jesus and they say, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Which, let's be honest, is probably a bit more subdued version of what they really said, (laughs) which I suspect came forth in a terrified torrent of obscenity and recrimination. And what does Jesus do? He kicks off the covers. He pulls on his slippers, shuffles out into the middle of the chaos, and he rebukes the wind. He rebukes the wind. Jesus points his finger at the wind and tells the wind to knock it off. There's going to be no video games for a month. And that's pretty bold, isn't it? Rebuking the wind. It's, in fact, the same word used later in Mark when Jesus rebukes demons and casts them out. But, so how does he do it? I mean, what, what, what are the first words out of Jesus' mouth? Shut up. The wind kicks up. Jesus speaks a word into the chaos and the power and and, and the violence of the storm are subdued and there is, the text says, dead calm. In fact, Mark uses the same word again here. Jesus speaks and there is a mega calm that is stronger than the mega storm. A peace stronger than the violent power of chaos. In other words, the kingdom of God will be sown not only on the safe side of the sea, where everything makes sense and all the rows are in order, the streets are familiar, the cereal aisle is right where it's supposed to be, but the kingdom of God will also be sown on the other side, where everything feels really scary and like the world might just spin out of control. But scary and chaotic is how the kingdom of God appears to those who have everything invested 
in things staying the way they are on this side. I mean, if we've spent our lives in a system that helped cover up the sins of our nation, and it's committed and in many cases commits to this day against our black siblings, then protecting those who profit from it and protecting us by keeping us in the dark about the horror, uh, the horror and inhumanity of it makes a certain amount of sense because we don't like that kind of stuff to get out there. But you see, when the kingdom of God pops up, it's going to feel like a megastorm that has come to tear the world apart to those who are happy with the world the way it is right now. But for those people who've regularly found themselves oppressed and marginalized, for those whose history always seems to get erased when it challenges the systems that keep some people in power, the megastorm of the kingdom of God must feel like the very breath of God to the vulnerable and the outcast. It feels like a peace that finally establishes justice and equity to all of God's children, especially those who've spent their lives living on the other side. In the dark, unforgiving environs that all the polite people have studiously tried to avoid. According to Jesus, the kingdom of God is going to break out on the other side where too many people have been forced to live. And that's good news. But for us, the question isn't just where the kingdom of God will appear, but whether we'll follow Jesus through the storm to get to it. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.